Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners. Welcome and thanks for joining us for this special edition Vetfolio podcast, where we'll be talking with Dr. Larry Garcia, as well as Brandy Phillips, two members of the University of Florida's Veterinary Emergency Treatment Services, or VETS team, about disaster preparedness. This team holds a special place in my heart. As some of you know, my husband's also a part of this team, and he's been involved in many response efforts, including Hurricane Irma. So I'm familiar firsthand with the amount of time and training this team dedicates to being a true community resource, both for animal technical rescue and disaster response. They have a wide depth of knowledge and training in this area. And in this podcast, they discuss how the VETS team operates, as well as offering tips for how to be prepared as a pet owner in the event of a disaster, and how we as veterinary professionals can help our clients prepare. Let me tell you a little bit more about my guests. Dr. Larry Garcia is a clinical assistant professor and the medical director for the VETS team at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. Prior to joining the university, Dr. Garcia was a shelter veterinarian in a large county shelter in South Florida. While in this role, Dr. Garcia participated in multiple response drills and provided veterinary insight for county emergency protocols and procedures. In his role as UF Vets Medical Director, Dr. Garcia oversees medical and pharmaceutical inventory, equipment maintenance, protocol writing, medical oversight, training, and team leadership. He's participated in several disaster response exercises and led a state-requested field hospital deployment. He also teaches graduate-level Introduction to Veterinary Disaster Response. Brandy Phillips first began working with UF Vets in 2011 as a curriculum specialist. Brandy teaches animal technical rescue training provided to first responders throughout the state of Florida. Over the years, she's responded to numerous technical rescue calls involving dogs, cows, and horses. She's also cross-trained in other technical rescue disciplines, including rope rescue, confined space, and swift water rescue. She serves as a subject matter expert on the National Fire Protection Association Committees for Technical Rescue and the Florida State Agricultural Response Team Steering Committee. Phillips also deploys as support staff for the Veterinary Disaster Response Team and serves as public information officer for the team. They're a wealth of information. Let's jump in. We have Brandy Phillips and Dr. Larry Garcia with us. Can you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? who you are, what you do, all that good stuff? Sure. So I'm Brandy Phillips. I have been involved with the VETS team. Um, really, it started in 2011 for me, and I have been involved mostly on the technical rescue side of the operations that we do. However, I do also serve as our public information officer for our disaster response team and support and logistics for that side as well. And I'm Dr. Garcia, and I have been associated with the team since 2016, and I serve as the medical director for the team. I have previous experience working in a shelter and being part of the county emergency management system, and so I have much of my training from prior to this, which made me a good fit for the position. Um, And I've done some emergency animal sheltering and and training in that area as well. So, Dr. Garcia, you kind of mentioned how uh, you got into this field. This isn't something that we hear about really commonly, disaster response and um, technical rescue and all this kind of stuff. How did you guys end up uh, doing doing this job? Well, I know for me, 
uh, I took on a position as a herd health veterinarian in a large municipal animal shelter. And as part of my duties in that role, I had to undergo all the ICS training and mainly from the perspective of being in South Florida and being part of uh, common responses to hurricanes. And so as part of that role, I took many of the trainings and actually beyond the normal basic training as well because I had roles both at the uh, emergency operations center as well as on site at the shelter. So I had spent a lot of time working with different types of animal rescues over the years, just on a voluntary basis for the most part, um, and was always really interested in that. Where I came into play was a little bit backwards almost. I was pursuing a master's degree in education and actually got involved with our technical rescue team to help develop the training curriculum from an educational standpoint. And I loved it so much and it was so unique, but so in line with some of the things that I was interested in that I just stayed on and continued to grow my position and opportunities within the program until we got to where we are today. Very cool. We'll also be talking a little, about, a little bit about, you mentioned the ICS training and the different trainings um, and some of the things that you guys have done to hold these positions in a separate podcast and give a little bit more detail on those. Let's talk about the actual team, the VETS team, Veterinary Emergency Treatment Services, in a little bit more detail. Can you tell us about some of the trainings with not necessarily going into um, the different organizations and stuff like that that we're going to talk about separately, but some of the training that you've done to be involved in these situations where you do have to carry out technical rescue of an animal or a group of animals? Yeah, so in addition to the incident command system training that we all do as part of any disaster response team, a lot of what we train on comes from human technical rescue disciplines. We apply that to animal applications, which usually means that we're working with heavier loads. We have a lot more dynamic situations based on animal behavior compared to human behavior. So a lot of our foundation of our training is actually in human technical rescue and response. And then we just apply that to the animal world. And you're saying heavier loads, the, the more dynamic, obviously, with animal behavior and heavier loads, because we're talking about like horses and cows and, yes. and a lot livestock, of times large animals. livestock animals that get trapped below grade, sometimes above grade and haylofts and things like that that require a little bit more um, specific techniques and tools and equipment that we have to use to get creative and how we're going to problem solve those issues. If I recall, there have been a couple swimming pool incidences as well. Yes, yes. Horses manage to find their way in swimming pools quite frequently. Septic tanks are another real fun day for us. Oh, that sounds terrible. Terrible. (laughs) So that kind of leads into this next question of what kind of disasters and situations have you responded to? So most recently, we responded to Hurricane Irma in Key West. And basically, from Big Pine Key South, there was no availability of Uh, medical care for the animals and intermittent water and electric and so our team is able to come down fully ready to provide water brings fuel for generators provide electric and so we can provide that medical care we also have an equipment cache and medical supply cache so we pretty much could set up a field hospital which is what we did we were there for about 10 days and provided care to animals from animal control animals uh, from individuals who stayed through the storm, animals who were freed from a structure because it was damaged during the storm, animals that might have been strayed during the storm prior to the storm as well, 
And so it's just a matter of kind of providing various levels of medical care. Uh, we did have the accessibility to functioning practices in Marathon Key, and so we did have to send a couple animals, stabilize them, and send them up to Marathon Key with transports so that they could get more intensive medical care. But we were basically ready for triage and kind of routine medical care and minor procedures as needed. There have also been some smaller scale incidences around the area. Um, you know, we talked about swimming pools and septic tanks, um, sinkholes, stuff like that. Have you guys been involved in those rescues as well? Yeah, so those, uh, we tend to think more on the emergency scale, local emergency scale, rather than a large disaster scale. But those crop up several times a year for us, where we provide support mostly to local, we call them authorities having jurisdiction. So usually the sheriff's office or the fire department locally, um, along with a veterinarian, will call our team in to assist with something that goes beyond what they can do in normal everyday emergency response practices. We've also had situations with hoarding cases where we've been able to participate and in some cases provide air-conditioned tents as triage centers for these animals that have been removed from a hoarding situation. We've also helped with um, local and national nonprofit organizations as well that provide support for these animals and helping them get medical care and get on to their next move, which could be another nonprofit for adoption or something like that. So you guys are really agile um, and really dynamic, able to respond to whatever the situation throws at you, whether it's a, a natural disaster or a man-made disaster, like a hoarding case or something like that. It's all about adaptability. Yes. Isn't that the case with uh, veterinary medicine as a whole? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's adaptability. And we do have lots of protocols, but it is, like you're saying, extremely dynamic. So there's really not one size fits all. And so as a medical director, it is kind of a unique situation where I have a lot of medical equipment and I basically have to adapt and adjust to what the need is if we're providing support to an already existing facility versus if I have to create a facility to provide support. And we have lots of equipment that can provide that. And so um, it does come in very handy in, in these cases because you just never really know what you're going to need until it happens. That's very cool like, to be be creative and adapt to whatever the situation throws at you. I think, too, it's really important to recognize that even when the situation sounds on the surface level to be the same, every one of them is different. So hurricane response, you can respond to two or three hurricanes, but you're going to have two or three different, very different responses every time. Um, a horse in a swimming pool you would think would go the same way every time, and it sure doesn't. There are always different factors that come into play, and so that's really the the most exciting part about it is just when you think that you've seen it all, you really realize that you haven't. And really the importance of that training that you guys uh, were talking about, which we, we really do need to dive in into that maybe in a separate podcast somewhere of all the different training programs that you guys have been through to adapt to these different situations. And, and one of the keys too is networking. One of the things that we found while we were down in Key West was as much as we were totally and completely prepared uh, it was really important to connect with the local veterinary medical association because there were things that I did need while I was down there that um, we couldn't bring with us or that we just didn't really necessarily knew we were going to need. And so luckily through that connection, we were able to get all kinds of resources from local practices and um, from the local association. So we were able to gain a lot of support while we were down there. Plus, it's very important while you're providing this sort of care 
to be in communication with the local veterinarians so that they understand what you're there for and why you're providing the care you're providing and that you're trying to just help support their community until they can get back on their feet. Right, provide that that support network for them so that they can get reopened and take their patients back and um, everybody's in good shape by the time they get there. Give them a, buy them a little bit of time. Let, let's uh, shift gears a little bit to pet owners. Based on some of the things that you guys have seen in your response, what are some of the general things that pet owners should have on hand or steps they should take to be prepared should they be in one of these disaster situations? So extremely important, one of the things that people don't often think about is keeping us a, a nice solid record of, of all the medical information for each animal and have that in a place that's accessible and protected. So in other words, waterproof, whether it's a safe or something like that. Because in the event they have to evacuate, they might need those medical records with them. By the same token, um, that information could be very important should they not be able to get back to their home. Say something happens to the home while they're at work, and sort of having a plan to get that information in the event their veterinarian's not available or that their veterinarian doesn't have power. So probably medical records is one of the big, big things. Um, in areas such as ours during hurricane season, it wouldn't hurt to have sort of backup medications on hand for those medications that can stay within a normal usage date so they're not going to expire on the owner to have some backup. So in the event you have to go two weeks without power or you can't get a refill for two weeks, having a backup supply of those medications. Um, and, and probably those two are the really the biggest because it may be that you're still at home, you just don't have the resources. By the same token, you might have to evacuate. And in that evacuation process, it would be very difficult to necessarily get those uh, medical needs met without having to start a new relationship with a veterinarian and kind of working from there. So having those medical records, um, medications, and then looking at things for, you know, evacuation. Do you have mobile housing like a crate? Do you have bowls? Do you have extra food? This time of year in hurricane season, it's really important to have extra food supplies so that if you do have to move. And it just sort of depends on the disaster. In some places where they're disaster prone all the time, such as wildfires and things like that, you really kind of have to keep that all sort of in a safe place, sometimes in cases like that fireproof, uh, where you can have those supplies that's needed so that you can get to where you need to safely. Um, and, and then things to think about for owners is like, is there a meeting place? So say all communication is lost from cell phones, is there a place where the family can agree upon to meet if you're separated or if you can't get back to your home? And by the same token, if you're evacuating, um, have your evacuation routes planned. Where would you go? Are you going to go, you know, obviously probably further from any other potential disasters, but also to think about are there pet-friendly shelters? Are there pet-friendly hotels along the way? And so it's really kind of thinking things through because it seems like, oh, well, I can just figure it out at the last minute. But the reality is there's many that suffer because they did not plan and did not plan a proper evacuation route where they could get to safety in time or where they could get to where they could have all their resources met. I'm sure you guys have seen that firsthand of cases where you said, man, I wish I just had a little more information here or, you know, a pet owner who, you know, if, if you don't have to supply all of these, you know, dog food and, and such, because people are prepared, then it just kind of eases the load on everybody. I'm picturing like working in an emergency clinic and somebody coming in and saying, well, my dog's on this medication, but they don't know what medication. 
And that was just kept going through my head when you were talking about having the medical records to be able to say they're on this medication at this dose. It, it makes life a lot easier. It definitely does. And I would add to that too, having good identification for your pet is really important because reunification gets to be a big deal if you don't have the right way and means of identifying these animals. Having a photo of yourself with your pet is a really great idea. But that by itself can change. Animals can change in their appearance when they've been out in a disaster for a few days, and it can be difficult to make a positive ID that way. So it's also a really good idea to have microchips, uh, tattoos if you have livestock, making sure that you have a phone number. Some people spray paint them or use polish on their coats to give them some kind of an identifying mark or feature so that they can get reunified with their owners. Have there been any situations where you've seen a type of identification that should have worked and should have been a good idea, but you're like, you know, I see why you think this would work, but this this was problematic for us? I would say probably the hardest part is using the proper painting or ink in cases with large animal where people are placing numbers and information on them, where sometimes that'll wash off in a flood or something along those lines. But for the most part, Microchipping is probably the most effective overall. Collars can be lost. Probably collars and some of those other things where people sort of wrap some kind of paper substance or plastic coated paper substance around an animal in such a way that it might serve as an identification. Probably those are usually the worst because those are the most prone to get ripped off or torn off or damaged. Or in some cases, items that can injure the animal. So the animal becomes annoyed by it and tries to get it off and so injures himself in the process. So as far as identification goes, that's probably, those are the areas where you can find some definite struggles there. I don't know that there's any that have been 100% ineffective. So it's worth a try, depending on what resources the owner may have available, but planning ahead would kind of alleviate that where you would have everything in place as needed. Sure, absolutely. What about for veterinarians? Are there steps that you would suggest to veterinarians where we can help our clients be prepared should they end up in one of these situations? Well, I think there's a lot of options. So with electronic records, it makes a nice access to portals. And so obviously we don't want to try to depend on those in the disaster situation, but there's the potential that we could either have screenshots on a phone or a thumb drive or something along those lines to keep up with those records. Um, I would say in a practice that didn't have high technology, you know, having some sort of synopsis or a copy of the medical record go home with the owner every time the animal comes through and then telling the owner, go ahead and keep these documents because at some point you might need them. This way they're not coming into the practice in hurricane season and saying, can I have my animal's entire medical history, which is going to take somebody 20 minutes to try to get it all printed out. I've definitely been there (laughs) printing out record after record after record for evacuations and stuff. So trying to get clients accustomed to like, here, here's the important understanding here. Here's the most important information. Please keep this in a place that's super accessible to you so that in the event that you need it, you will have that access. Um, but I think that's uh, probably the most important there. And then one of the other big things for uh, veterinarians to help clients with is helping them understand just because you have a microchip doesn't mean you are protected. So have you updated the information? Have you checked your registration? Have you made sure that all the information that there is up to date? Because there's many times where microchips are inserted and never registered. And so in those cases, 
it's great. I know this practice inserted this microchip, but the practice may not have a way to track it back to the pet. And so really making sure that information's up to date. There's many companies out there now that will do a lifetime registration, so you don't even have to worry about it. And so the animal's registered for life, and so anybody that comes across that, they will have your address and phone number and the most important contacts. And so that's one of the things that should be done annually anyway. It's kind of really updating that information so that you can keep track. And then same way too, in places where rabies registration and rabies tags are required, having that information up to date as well. So that there's another resource, as long as the collar is still on the animal, that they can still get access and understand and, and find the owner. So a lot of education on veterinarians part of yes. this is the information that you will need um, should you end up in this situation and um, like you said with the microchips and stuff like that making sure they understand how they work and that they need to be updated and everything. Yes and there's actually some great resources out there for animals with special allergies and specific uh, reactions to drugs where those can be inserted into a little tag on the collar as well as much like we have tags for humans that are diabetic and have other health conditions that are chronic in that way, um, those can be placed on an animal's collar. The problem is, should the collar fall off, but the answer is that having at least something somewhere to identify this dog has this issue is really important. Right, it's worth a try. So that way, should anybody come across this animal and try to help it, they don't hurt it in the process. I didn't even think about that, but that's a really good suggestion. So you guys have provided fantastic information that I feel like is going to be really educational and things that we don't think about on a regular basis. Can we uh, just kind of switch to like story time here for a minute? What's your favorite disaster response story? Well, uh, what I would say for me, um, while down in Key West responding to Irma, uh, it was just so awesome to be so welcomed into a very tight-knit community and, and to be so appreciated for everything we were doing. And um, people just were so grateful for just the littlest thing. And, you know, a dog that had some itchy skin and just the fact that we could examine it and maybe get him some shampoo or, you know, help him get some allergy medication in. And, and you know, even if it was just not a big deal, it was just so great to be able to just help those animals. And you could see these people were really struggling and they had just been really traumatized by a really horrific event. And, and to be there to kind of help console them and comfort them and help them feel better and help their animals feel better was just amazing. And then to the more extreme cases where, you know, we had a, a cat that was found stray that was super dehydrated and in terrible, terrible condition. And we were able to kind of get it stabilized so that we could set it up to the hospital for more advanced medical care and the cat did great. And so just knowing that we had that impact on the area and helping all those animals and being there for the ones that were in a structure that was evacuated and made it out because the structure was damaged and we were able to help them reconnect and, and be reunited. You set out to help and you guys were away from your families and made this whole big trip and to feel like it was really worth it. And you really, really helped people and animals in that situation. Definitely. What about you, Brandy? One of my favorite stories from Hurricane Irma was we had a gentleman who had two dogs and they were siblings from the same litter. And he had had these dogs. This is really his family. You know, these were, these were his children in effect. And he came to us and his male dog was insulin dependent. And of course, as part of this whole process, 
he didn't have enough insulin to support. And um, so we were not in a position to be able to dispense insulin, but we could provide it. So he actually came out to our field hospital twice a day to have his dog come in to be checked to receive that insulin. And he was just so friendly and so grateful and it meant so much to him. And he brought both dogs with him every time. And that brought us, I think, a lot of joy every day that he was there, um, just being able to have that constant contact with somebody who was just over and over again, so appreciative of us and to be able to see his dogs thriving and doing well in spite of the conditions that everybody was living in. And those kind of situations really make it a lot easier to be on the road away from your family in a bad situation to know that you're providing something important for those folks. Absolutely. Those are, those are great stories and rooted in the same thing. Just you, you set out to help and, and you did it. Um, it's been so great talking to you guys. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much to Brandy Phillips and Dr. Garcia. What a fantastic episode full of relevant information that we don't always think about, but probably should. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out our second interview where Brandy and Dr. Garcia dive into what it takes to become a responder. To find more podcasts like this, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's website. As always, we love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.